Welcome to Coffee with Cornelius, and thank you for joining us. If you enjoy this content, please hit the like button and subscribe if you would like to see more. Today, we are here with Leonard Wanchikon. Dr. Wanchikon is a professor of politics at Princeton University, and we're going to be today talking about Dr. Wanchikon, a bit about his background. He has a fascinating background as a student activist in Benin his uh, native country, his, we're going to talk about his research into politics in Africa, and also we're going to be talking about the university he founded in his native Benin, the African School of Economics, which trains Africans in cutting-edge economic techniques and research. Dr. Wanchikon, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's Happy to be here. It's great to have you on. So, uh, Dr. Wanchikon, I read in The Economist, there was a profile of you in that magazine. Mm -hmm. I read that you were a student activist in Benin, protesting against the then dictator Mathieu Caricou. Yeah. This put you in a few dangerous situations. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's just fascinating. Yeah, so when I started college uh, in 1979, I set up a student uh, pro-democracy group, and we organized a major kind of student protests in 1979. I was kicked out of the university um, for, for, for five years, for, in fact, for life. And I was on the run wow. for five years. When I came, when there was an amnesty um, and I came back uh, in 1984. And in 84, we organized even a much bigger uprising this time that led to my arrest in, um, in uh, July 1985. So I spent... Uh, one year and a half in prison, managed to escape. And then when I escaped, I got uh, a political refugee status uh, to Canada. So I stepped in, I went to Quebec from, uh, from Côte d'Ivoire, where I was a refugee. I was in Quebec for about two years. And then I went to UBC to start my PhD mm -hmm. until uh, I got my... Uh, and then I finished at Northwestern and then became professor afterwards. So I was not just a participant. I was actually one of the main leaders of the pro-democracy movement in Benin. And I think for me, it's clearly my most significant accomplishments because it was, um, you know, democracy in Africa started from Benin with a national conference. And, you know, and we, I was part of a group that actually started a movement that led to democracy in Benin. So um, I'm extremely uh, grateful and that uh, I could survive this experience and be what I am today. It's yeah. great. And it's a fascinating story. It's like a movie, in fact. Uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I have a qu question, though. How did you escape imprisonment? That must have been a pretty interesting. So, so I mean, I. Yeah. Okay, basically, what I did was uh, I made a lot of friends right. among uh, the guards, and and I was never somebody who is. I mean, I'm always somebody calm and collected, even on the, so, so I was not like, you know, when I ask to get treatments outside the prison, I was given the opportunity hmm. uh, to, to, to do it. 
And then I came back the first time. The second I asked, that time the surveillance was more relaxed. I came back and then the third time I left. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it was, uh, it was a strategy that I set up to be able to, uh, to leave. And obviously I exaggerated my condition a little bit. Right. Uh, to force the hands of the guard to let me outside. Um, you know, I describe all this in uh, my, uh, my autobiography when I describe the steps that led me to, to escape uh, was in was, uh, December 6, 1986. Yeah. And that is a fascinating story. Uh, I'd like to ask, did your activism, did your background in Benin and elsewhere, did that have any effect on your decision to study economics and get a PhD in the subject? Interesting. Yeah. When I was in Benin, I was, uh, when I started college, I was math major. I was, my only, my big dream was to become a mathematician and a professor in mathematics. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when I was uh, in hiding for five years, a friend of mine brought me Das Capital, you know, the Karl oh, Marx. That's all I have to do. So I read it 20 times and uh, I know every wow. bit of it. <laughs> and then I really like the elegance. I like the broad kind of uh, knowledge that economics require. Mm -hmm. And um, and part of uh, that's capital, especially book two, was very analytical. You know, it's very mathematical to some degree. Right. You know, like the first part is very philosophical and uh, very broad, historical, philosophical. But the second part was very analytical and mathematical. So I got I got interested in economics when I went to Laval. I enrolled in math, and then I decided to take an econ class. And I was induced to switch from math to economics. Hmm. And they, they put me on a, on a fast track program called Stash Probatoire pour la Maîtrise. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to doing math and finishing four years, I could get my bachelor degree in one year. Because, Whoa. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Fast track program. So because they knew that I have a potential, you know. Right especially given my math background and also my age, I, I, I was already 32. Okay, so, right. So I decided to switch then from mathematics to economics. And no, I think it was the best decision for me because I think um, economics is, have, give you so much flexibility. You mm -hmm. know, you can do, you can be very heavy, pure math and still be econ, you can be, you can be, you know, you, you can love history, psychology, you know, sociology and still, True. you know, anyway. So I like the fact that econ is more than a methodology today than it's a, it's about really a substantive topic, you know, and, and I think I, I was very lucky. Not only get me to save three years, you know, I mean, yeah, sure. and then the fact that I can use my, life experience and not and my my um and my math background put all of them together you know uh you know to uh to, to you know to in my in my work you know so so i think it was really the perfect choice for me
Yeah. I'd like to talk about your work because it is very unique and it's something that I don't think has been replicated anywhere else. Essentially, you managed to do a randomized field experiment with actual presidential candidates in an yeah. actual presidential election, first in 2001 in Benin, secondly in 2006 in Benin. Yeah. Uh, let's talk with, about the first uh, research paper that came out of that. That was a 2003 article in World Politics. Exactly. Uh, and basically in the midst of a countrywide presidential campaign in 2001, you managed to convince all of the candidates to engage in a randomized field experiment. Yeah. Uh, first of all, how did you manage to convince okay. these guys to go along with this? I, I mean, um, I think my activist part and also my, the fact that I... I, I try, I always try very hard to persuade um, people to do things that they may not have wanted to do otherwise because right. I can get them to see what they are, where their interests lie. Mm -hmm. you know, so first of all, um, I, you know, I was an economist by training, so I got into political science much later. So when I read political science, you know, as a soft, as a, as a, as a, you know, as, as a, as a study, you know, as, I was a political activist, but I never really took a political science class when I was in grad school. So when I started, um, I saw how simplistic, I should say, how very simplistic, how this very simplistic view that people have about African politics, you know, mm -hmm. I read that, Voters in Africa are intrinsically like clientelist. Like, for instance, they cannot vote on national interest. They cannot right. vote on public goods. They can only vote based on material inducement, on mm -hmm. ethnic affiliation, you know. Um, ethnic and, affiliation. So, like, if you are the same tribe as exactly. the candidate, okay. Yeah, you go along. And then if people give you $5, then you will um, prefer voting for that person as opposed to somebody who promised a school for you, you know? Right. Or that um, if you talk about a national program, for instance, reform the tax system, reform education system, people are not going to pay attention to you. So they are going to pay attention to you only if you focus very narrowly on what is in their immediate private interest. Right. So, and I thought that, how can I, what is the most credible evidence that I can provide in support or not of this claim that people make about African politics? So as a result, I went to, uh, I just went to politicians and I, I tell them that it will be good if, for instance, they take one message and they frame it um, as, a, as a part of a national program or something which is more targeted, narrowly targeted to the audience that they are talking to, you know? So, and then they are going to, you know, we randomize, um, basically the selection of the audience or you know villages and 
communities and neighborhoods that we are going to provide this message. And then we are going to collect the data after the election to see how effective this was. But so, and what we decided to do is to go to a bit extreme, you know, like, so we, the, the usual message is always a combination mm -hmm. of something broad or something narrow. So then I get them to purify that message into something which is purely broad or purely narrow, mm -hmm. you know? Obviously, it's extremely hard to get people to vote positively on a purely broad message, you know? Because sure, I mean, yeah. you cannot vote for the national program unless you see to what extent it affects you. Yeah. So we did that. So we, we made it hard, hard for the broad message to be effective so that we can see maybe people, individuals, group who still are responsive to that. You right. see what I mean? So, and we run it and we find that uh, the narrowly focused message is more effective in general, mm. but in places that are more cosmopolitan, is more effective. The broad message is more effective. Right. And the broad message was more effective among women mm. than men, more effective among, um, you know, among voters who are more educated than those right. who are educated. You know, so it was a very, it was now an eye opening for me, first methodologically, because I was using, you know, randomized control trial, yeah. real political setting. But then I was able to understand that even though narrowly targeted message might be effective, the broad-based message can equally be effective depending on the, you know, depending on mm -hmm. gender, depending on uh, social economic conditions of the audience. So it's possible that in fact, the broad-based message that we see even in very developed democracies, it can be effective even in new democracies, you know? So, right. and I was encouraged by the fact that, you know, um, women in particular, for instance, in fact, were more progressive, or not progressive, were more kind mm -hmm. of supportive of these kind of messages, uh, because, you know, you can understand reason why this might be the case because, you know, um, they are not the best, they are, they are not the, the beneficiaries of mostly targeted program among politicians. Mm -hmm. So, and they may have, you know, they may be, you know. They so are, does that mean that the money would be going mainly to the men of the house? Yeah, I mean, so, and the, the, the pro, what we did here is not even about money. It's not about, right. you know, because, you know, the issue here is policy, you know, okay. when the policy is defined, explained in such a way that it's very, very, very targeted. Like, for instance, I'm going to build a school for you, mm -hmm. for this village, versus I have a, an education program for the whole country that right. will mean building a school. So your community might benefit, might benefit directly or not. 
But what we have, what, what I have in mind is something for the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. you, you see what I mean? Anyway, but but I think the point you wanted to make is the fact that I was able to get politicians to test that idea, you know, and they agree because they all they they, they want to learn, you know. They agree also because you know they cannot campaign everywhere in the country, so they may as well select randomly places where that they can leave for research, if you will, you know? And since then, you know, similar projects have been run, you know, in Asia, in Canada, in France, in the US. So I think this project, to some degree, um, led to the use, the wider use yeah. of randomized control trial in elections, particularly, I mean, in politics in general, and in election in particular. Yeah. yeah, and it is used today very broadly now. Um, now, somebody who's just watching this and who's listening to you will say, well, you know, that doesn't seem so bad. I like uh, clientelism. I want a school to be built in my own town. I don't care about, you know, Toronto. I want a school to be s built here in St. Catharines. Uh, but essentially, clientelism can lead to other problems, right? It can lead to uh, maybe pernicious effects. Could you talk a little bit about those in the context yeah, of Africa? Okay. The, yeah. The, the issue with clientelism yeah. is that it could well be that what you need, what Toronto needs is in priority is roads and what maybe Mr. Soga needs in priority is hospital and school right you see what I mean? so if a politician doesn't have a national view of the issues and have very opportunistic view it will lead to misallocation of resources mm -hmm. like for instance places that needs a given public good more will not get it i see but exactly so if you know, because the allocation of public goods has to depend, has to be, has to depend on, you know, um, you know, some kind of welfare maximization, uh, you know, uh, function. You know, it shouldn't right. be just driven by elections. You know, like right. not about oh yeah, this guy. If I tell them that I am going to bring school for them, they vote for me. Okay, I'm mm -hmm. just going to vote for them. I'm going to give school for them for that reason. But in fact they might need the school less than other people. Yeah. So result and so on. So that's one issue. The second issue is that, you know, usually to, to be able to get, um, what the, the other issue of clientele is not just misallocation, it's corruption, you know, because mm. typically you need somebody who might be, you know, a local activist or a local chief or a, some, some kind of broker to be your messenger in the community. Right. And, you know, if you, are, if you want to target people, you need somebody from the community that you're going to recruit and that person is going to drive that message home for you. And typically in a clientelist network, that person, for instance, uh, you, might, you might need to uh, promise him a job when you get elected. 
so that he can deliver the clientelist message for you. Well, he might not be the most efficient, the most competent person to hold a position in your government. Mm -hmm. He might not be the most um, you know, qualified person. And worse, when he's elected, he wants to get, he or she wants to be rewarded for helping you to win the election locally. And as a result, you can close your eyes on corruption thing that he, he, he might be doing because he, he or she is being rewarded, you know? So you see what I mean? Yeah. You know, so clientelism is not just the fact that it had lead to misallocation, like roads being built where it's not needed. Hospital um, or airport being built nowhere because you needed to get people to vote for you. Mm -hmm. But also clientelism tends to involve local brokers who might, you might have to hire mm -hmm. once you are in office and that drive corruption. But not only small corruption, but grand corruption. Like, right. because if I got the Toronto vote for you, you are a candidate, I got the Toronto vote for you. And it was big. So my reward is that I'm going to become Ministry of Transportation. And I know that in two years, I have to recuperate, I have to get all the investment that I made to get you elected. So you are going to close the eyes on every shady deal that I've made so that you won't, you, you see what I mean? Yeah, and I see what you mean, yeah. Corruption is driven in large part by clientelist practices. You yeah. Know? So, so clientelism is not just like bad for the allocation of public goods because it's politicized as opposed to driven by mm. national interest, but also it's in large part uh, the driver of, uh, of corruption. You know? So to so what extent does do Western nations have a problem with clientelism? Because I can think of a situation and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say any names here, but like if you're the government of Canada, surely you have to appoint a few Quebecois uh, people, right? I mean, exactly. not, you know. So, so, yeah, so, so that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. That's a very, very important point. So it's a myth that clientelism is observed only in, develop, in developing countries yeah, because, you know, misallocation of resources that I just described is something mm -hmm. more or less universal. And patronage politics, the one that I just described, is something mm -hmm. which is more or less universal. So obviously it might be worse in some countries than others because in Canada, you might have laws that help you check who the next Ministry of Finance is. Yeah then there might be popular outcry if he or she is clearly there, you know, as a reward for his campaign contribution. You know, there might be some limitation to, of the extent of the damage of clientelism because of the, the states is strong, the judiciary, the legal institution can help prevent some of the degree of corruption that you observe. You, you see what I mean? Right, so, yeah. So, so as a result, clientelism is not something which is black or white. It's a matter of degree. You know, mm -hmm. like you might have worse from clientelism in Latin America, Africa, but clientelism, patronage politics as a whole, it's everywhere. You know, and, and this is also one of the things that I would like to show in my research because there is a sense in which, you know, 
politics in those countries, oh, it's very, very different from politics here. You know, yeah. like over there, nobody votes based on, you know, ethnic affiliation. Well, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. nobody votes here. Uh, and, you know, you, you don't have patronage politics here. You don't, no, that's not true. So anyway, I mean, politics look alike almost everywhere. Institutions can reduce the worst form of corruption, the worst form of clientelism in some places, not others. You know? mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's what uh, the kind of research that I do uh, help uh, uh, to help to show. Well, if it's not a problem that's unique to Africa, of course it isn't. Uh, what can we do to reduce clientelism? You had a paper, I think, in 2011, AEJ Applied, yes. American Economic Journal Applied, which speaks a little bit to this. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. can we What can we do to reduce so, it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So, so in fact, yeah. after I did the first paper and I showed that, well, clientelism work, and I explained why it works. My next question was, how can you make mm -hmm. programmatic public goods oriented, national public good oriented platform as effective as, you know, so it become like a normative exercise, you know, how you promote what, what is good. But then it's going to be about testing strategies, testing um, electoral strategies that will make what is good, not only in the best interest of the candidate, but also of the country. You see what I mean? So I think national you know, public good platform is good for the country, but then is there a way you can make it as effective electorally as the clientelist platform. So, and then I came with an idea, which is what I call policy deliberation. So you run your campaign, not based on big rallies, big, you know, show one way communication, um, you know, big meetings kind of strategies, but instead, more like foot soldier oriented, town hall meeting oriented campaign. Mm -hmm. So there I was, I, I talked to um, the main political parties. We randomized places where they run the um, electoral campaign based on town hall meeting in some areas, mm -hmm. or the business as usual, like big meetings elsewhere. Right. So same platform, but the communication strategy is different. In one place is interactive, deliberative. In another place is one-way communication. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Like, okay, in a rally, I speak to you and to get you excited and I leave. The other place, I will provide a short summary of what I stand for. And then there are discussions back and forth and and then the meeting ends uh, based on a platform which is new, which is the result of this kind of an interaction between the audience and the politician, okay? So town hall meeting versus rallies, those were the two strategies that we tested. So, and we find that in fact, 
town hall meeting, despite being 10 times cheaper, yeah. were more effective than rallies. Hmm. So, and the result was so strong that in fact, um, we tried the same thing in the Philippines. You know, we mm -hmm. also run a project in the Philippines and it confirmed the original finding. That Amazing. So why this was the case? Well, we find that town hall meeting was effective for two or three reasons. The first one is information, you know, because be people ask you specific questions about your platform and you provide more explanation, you know, that get them to have a better understanding of what you stand for. Yeah. So the reason why the national kind of platform kind of program was not effective, it was because it was too opaque, too mm -hmm. vague, you know? It was just a statement of vision. It's not necessarily something practical that people can vote on. You see what I mean? So, so that was one, one, uh, one, one. The second one is people can comment, add, and they can even suggest items that you haven't thought about before. Mm. So as a result, that campaign becomes not only your campaign, but their campaign. Their platform, the platform that you are going to implement, because it had been amended, adjusted, customized by the audience, it becomes their own campaign as much as it's yours. So you feel more empowered. You see what I mean? And then third, because of that, they, the participant to the town hall meeting turned themselves into unpaid activists on your behalf. They are more likely to go out and share your platform with others than in a place, in a place where mm. it was just one-way communication. You see what I mean? So if you want clarity, if you want empowerment, if you want individuals to share your platform more widely then a town hall meeting campaign strategy is the way to go you see what i, I see, mean yeah so we find that so, so so what is interesting here is that we when we think about political campaign this the the substantive aspect is important but the technology of communication part is equally important. And the technology of communication is not necessarily a very fancy kind of um, um, you know, technology you know, to get people to believe in this or that, is also the level of engagement, the level mm. of ownership that you want the audience to have on your, on your, on your campaign. So, so this is, um, um, so that was a very, very big project. And then what we are doing currently, we are applying to, you know, to do it in other countries, in other settings, you know, this idea of deliberation, you know, like engagement as a way to improve, you know, um, basically uh, to improve the chances that good platform mm. gets candidate elected, you know? And, and why this is also very important is the fact that because it's, it's, it's very, it's cheaper, you can, because I mean, a rally you need, you have two, you have maybe, uh, I don't know, 
100 times more people in a rally than in, you know, in a town hall meeting, you know? And as a result, and, and, and in, a, in a big rally, you have to spend more because you have to, you know, logistics is more expensive. So this is something I, I wanted to ask you about, actually, is um, I definitely get that it's cheaper for politicians to engage in a town hall meeting. Yeah. But at the end of the day, what I care about as, as a politician is whether I get elected in. Which one has a bigger bang for the buck, right? Like, so the n amount of money I spend versus the amount of votes I get. Uh, are our politicians really going to be incentivized to adopt a town hall? Yeah. So, so, yeah. so what I so what I'm saying is that, yeah. In fact, the the places where they run a town hall meeting, they have higher vote share than really. Places. Okay. Yes. Well, yes. In the Philippines, in the Philippines, because we're running with smaller parties, the vote share increase was by fifty percent. Wow. Benin. It was done by bigger candidates, you know, major candidates by seven percent. But it works, it works better for opposition and new candidate than it works for incumbent. Okay. You I mean? yeah. So if you are a new candidate, for instance, running opposition candidate running, clearly town hall meeting style is the best strategy. And even for for um, for incumbents, their vote share does not significantly increase but oh. it's cheaper it is cheaper so the bang for the buck is better either way exactly so yeah. in other words i guess the trump campaign should consider town hall <laughs> meetings instead of rallies yeah but then obviously um they might not like what happened after at, at the town hall meeting that's that is true yeah that is yeah because point. i mean if you, are, if yeah. you have a positive message yeah. if you have an inclusive message yeah. then you might consider a town hall meeting. But mm -hmm. if you have divisive, you have um, a negative, and this might not be the place. So, yeah. so clearly, candidates that you and I, and most people would like to run, you know, uh, you know who, who, that you like this kind of candidate to, to run, and people who have positive, inclusive message, but they don't have the money and also, it's not something that will get people excited immediately because mm -hmm. it's not really controversial. A town hall meeting style campaign is effective. But the broader message here is that yeah. we should not only think about what politician or what policy ought to be implemented. We also need to think about strategies, technologies that politicians have to put in place to achieve, mm -hmm. you know, and right. which one is the most cost effective, which one is also um, the best in terms of voter education, in terms of voter empowerment, in terms of uh, getting voter to, or voters activism, you know, in election. Okay, yeah. Because that's what you want. You want, for instance, that people by themselves go door to door to spread your message. Mm -hmm. you know, not only good for the candidate, it's also good for democracy. Absolutely. Word of mouth, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's only good for democracy. Especially people do it because they believe in what you are saying, what you are doing, not because they get paid to do mm -hmm. it. Yeah. For sure.
I'd like to take a little bit of a detour here and I'd like to yeah. skip ahead a little bit uh, because I'd like to go back a little bit in history. You do economic history in addition to your work on politics. Yeah. And fascinating work. You have done some work on education and human capital in yeah. Africa. Now, there's this narrative among some historians, and it's a bit of a caricature, I think, uh, this caricature that missionaries and colonies were uniformly bad. They arrived with the sole aim of indoctrinating young African minds, you know, with imperialism and ideas of white uh, superiority and so on. And, and, you know, there might be some truth to it. I, I'm, I'm sure there is. But, uh, but is this characterization true? And to what extent is it true? Uh, or is it false, for that matter? No, that, that, that's a good question. So, yeah. um, you know, the same way um, I, you know, my... I, I grew up as a political activist mm -hmm. and that shaped the work that I do. I also grew up in a very unique place, which is uh, the, the place that has the first or one of the very first Catholic school in the whole West Africa. No way. So it was uh, the village is called Zanyanado. Mm -hmm. That's where I was born. You know, my, my, my parents were subsistence farmers and, but, Two kilometers away from where I was born, one of the first Catholic schools was, mm. was created. Okay? So the people who created those schools, they were really missionaries in a true sense. Mm -hmm. You know, like, um, you know, they walk like three months to get there. They set up a school that was burned down. They rebuilt it. And the first cohort, they walked from village to village to get the cohorts and they got, you know, so they even died. I mean, they died very young. I mean, especially the founder of the school died when he was 32. He came there when he was 24. Cool. So Crazy. there were two missionaries. Yeah. So, and what I did in my work is to try to understand the impact of that school in, on social mobility. Mm -hmm. and the mechanism of that mobility. What I did, I mean, I was inspired by the fact that clearly that school changed the lives of my, 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 my family um, because my uncle went to that school and my uncle was, the, was really the light of the whole community. His success inspired the whole community to the point where in my generation, all to up to 90%. I mean, he went to school in, you know, in, in 1909. And like 30 years later or 40 years later, um, no, I should say 60 years later, 60 years later, when I, people from my generation, the primary school enrollment rate where I was born was about 90%. So places with no school, in the 60, in the in low school in the 19th century or early 20th century, primary school rates, uh, enrollment rate in those places were about 20, 25%. But where I was born, it was about 90%. Amazing. In the village I was born, I grew up with, um, I grew up uh, people from my cohorts, more or less. We have about 40, 50 kids from the village. And the village population was about 300, 300, 320. But kids from my age were about 40. 13 of those 40 has PhD. That's crazy. Yeah. And That's you know, amazing. like you think, you think of letters, there are people from my village who are now medical doctors in Germany, in Martinique, France, 
you know, the former ambassador of Benin in Russia is from my village. The number two in Vatican, Cardinal Ganti, his name is. No he, way, I know who that guy is. from my village. <laughs> he's from Zayanado. You know, so, so, I mean, like, right. the village has spectacular level of social mobility. So, uh, use micro data, especially in environments where early exposure to education creates a high demand for education. Mm -hmm. In those places, you see a very high level of social mobility. And what is interesting is mobility were stronger among people who early on, like people uh, early on did not go to school, but were living near a school. You see what I mean? So what drive mobility in my community is not the fact that mobility was not driven in entirely by those whose, those whose grandparents went to school. They were driven by people who were living near them who get inspired by the success of those people. You see what mm -hmm. I mean? So if you look rigorously using microdata, it's very, very difficult to argue that education was bad for mm -hmm. social mobility. It's the total opposite. Now, here is the story. If you did not have extractive institution like forced labor, repression, the level of mobility coming for education will have been much higher than it is. Okay. If the economy were based more on productive institution as opposed to, you know, like productive with firms and private sector development, you know, I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, as opposed to more rentier type kind of institutions, because most people who went to school those days, they went to public service. You know, they became like, uh, you know, they worked for the colonial administration. Assume that there were investment that enabled them to even create, you know, their own company and firms and so on, using their knowledge to develop local economies, the level of mobility would have been much higher. So. Mm -hmm. If it's true that colonial institutions, political institutions, um, uh, they, they may not have necessarily positive impact on long-term development, but places that you have more education, the neg this negative impact was much weaker. Amazing. I mean? Right. So that's the story. The story is that Education cannot be to blame. It's perhaps the extractive institutions. I see. You know, that may be to be blamed, and the effect of education might be much stronger, much bigger, if you know, uh, the institutions were more productive as opposed to more extractive. Do you, you see what I mean? Right. So, so I will not, I will, I will think that, if anything, education limited the, perver the pervasive effect of colonialism, you know? And, and I mean, I tell people all the time that if to exploit, if to, um, you know, to oppress your strategy is to educate, then that's you know, not really smart. You know, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. So, right, yeah. so, so 
I mean, is education is something that goes in the interest of a colonial administration, the colonial institution? Yes. But education in particular mm -hmm. makes Africans who are educated and their neighbors much better off than those who are not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, something that I uh, admire about you, Dr. Wanchikon, is that you have put a lot of your research into practice and you've put a lot of your principles into practice and you founded something called the African School of Economics. This is a graduate level school. It yeah. trains African students in the latest techniques and the latest methods, latest research. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the African School of Economics. Yeah. So basically, um, you know, I, I, the question you ask about education is something that I find personally inspiring mm -hmm. because if a school set up in 19th century can produce someone like me today, mm -hmm. well, I, 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 you know, I should be inspired by that and do something on my own. So I decided to, to set up, you know, a cutting edge research oriented economics program in Benin. So very limited infrastructure, very limited resources. And, and yet the curriculum is very much like, you know, the top, any top econ mm -hmm. program, you know. So very, very selective. You know, we select students, you know, based on tests and based on academic performance, very selective, but also relatively cheap. You know, uh, students pay about 2,400 a year. And uh, how do we pay for the whole, the cost, how we pay for the program through research? Mm. So basically 80%, 85% of the revenue of the school is based on research contract, you know? Cool. Like for instance, the project I have been describing to you, the political economy project, the education project, they were all, you know, they were, they run, they were run through the school, you know? So, so results of that is uh, for the past uh, five years, we have been able to replace about 20 students to top PhD program in the US. So we have a student from this school who are in Calgary, uh, who are in Ottawa, who are in Montreal, Princeton, NYU, Wisconsin, and so on. Many of them are working at the World Bank, UNDP. So, so in terms of resources invested and the result, I mean, it's just, the gap is, is huge. So, and what we are doing is to use this model, this successful model, combining like, like math, microeconomics, economic history, and research, and try to, to take it in several places in Africa, like the missionary used to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, the best one, the best missionary is to yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, my missionary, my missionary were perhaps, were perhaps the best, but I'm not, going to, I'm not going to claim that every missionary across Africa in 19th century were like mine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so, so currently we opened the program in uh, Cote d'Ivoire and we are planning to open it in Congo, in Mauritius, in South Africa, in other places, you know. And so the goal is really um, to, rev to revolutionize like uh, economic research, like you and I um, have been exposed to um, across Africa, so that we have a better representation of Africans in, in economic research at the top level, but also that we can provide very valuable kind of uh, advice and support for government and private sector across Africa. 
So, so that's what I'm. That's what I'm, that, that, that's what I have been doing, and uh, and I'm very glad that the economics article that you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, you know, gave a lot of visibility. Yeah. To, because it's very very different. You know, like when people set up universities, they think about you know, well, we got 60 million from the Gates Foundation. We have this big campus, 100 hectares. You know, yeah. but, you know, let little attention to the curriculum. The content, yeah. Yeah, to the, yeah, and and I think we we want to move away from that model, and uh, we spend a lot of money on faculty and and research, you know, to make sure that we produce, um, you know, first class. Uh, so I'm extremely excited about this, and uh, yeah, especially given that the fact that we'll be expanding. So let me tell you one more thing about mm -hmm. that school before I leave. In fact. We are going to set up uh, a small program in Harlem, New York, in cool. partnership with uh, the Kunis, so that it will allow us to do the same training that we do in Africa for young Africans to African Americans here, and also to, to uh, facilitate exchange between African diaspora in general. And, and that Africa. is so, so cool. Yeah. So, and, and again, it's not anything grandiose. We mm -hmm. are going to set up, um, you know, a joint, a joint program with some uh, local universities. Why? Why Harlem? Because for obvious reasons, Harlem mm -hmm. is, Africa, you know, an African culture, African diaspora. So having mm -hmm. students there, students from mm -hmm. Africa there, it's something that will create um, a very, an environment that's very conducive. Um, you know, to uh, not only to technical training, but also students who are extremely um, well-versed in African history and uh, African culture. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we're getting near the end of the interview. I'd like to just ask you, Dr. Wanchikon, though, where can we find you? Do you have a Twitter? Do you have a website? Could you just yes. let us know about that? Yeah. So my, uh, my Twitter is uh, at El Wanchikon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a Facebook page. Um, I also have my uh, Princeton University website. You type my, anybody type my name, they'll find me on the Princeton University website. Um, so yeah, so, so that's uh, basically, uh, you, you can find me um, you know, anywhere. Website, Princeton, Twitter, uh, at El Wanchekong, my Facebook page. And um, yeah, so that's what it is. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Wanchikon. This has been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> I really appreciate it. My and pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, God bless you and your initiatives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have thank a good you. One. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.